It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 17th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why a Mississippi school district is at the center of a local and national media firestorm. We could bury these books, or we could use them as an opportunity to have conversation. That's part of why To Kill a Mockingbird is part of the canon of American literature. Then, on Everyday Tech, home networking can be a pain, but it doesn't have to be if you know what you're doing. Learn ways to easily get your devices connected. And hear what Mississippi farmers can do to inform national decisions about their labor. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A national organization against censorship is questioning a Mississippi school district's decision to remove a book from its eighth grade lesson plan. Some call Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird an American classic. The book tells the story of a black man wrongfully convicted of raping a white woman through the eyes of the daughter of the attorney defending him. The Biloxi School District is removing the novel set in a fictional small Alabama town. Reportedly, complaints about the use of the N-word made some people uncomfortable. School Superintendent Arthur McMillan says students have the book and can study it with their teachers, but other resources will be used to teach state standards. The issue has drawn the attention of the National Coalition Against Censorship. Jazz Chana is Communications Director of the National Coalition Against Censorship. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier it is a common attempt. I think we first heard about it from news reports, and this is a common textbook case, excuse the pun, issue for us. We've defended Killing Mockingbird uh, a number of times in the past, um, and so, yeah, when we saw the news, we, we leapt into action. What is usually the issue behind uh, school districts wanting to not use this book? Predominantly, it's because of uh, the presence of racial language, uh, racial slurs. That's pretty much the issue, at least at the time that I've been at NCAC. Uh, teachers uh, and often uh, parents and students themselves find the presence of, of, of racial language uh, uncomfortable. And what is your organization's position on that? While we understand the concerns, we understand that, the, that these, this language can be tough and difficult. The book itself uh, provides an opportunity for 
students to engage with, with racial issues. And the classroom is, is a safe place for students to learn about American history, some of the darker elements of, race, um, of American history, and, and engage with terms and, and putting them in historical context and understand, understand the legacy today. What is it that you're looking to do now? So we're currently writing a letter to the school district. Um, we're going to be advocating for uh, the book to be, to be put back in classrooms. Well, tell us, at this point, what is it that you want to get across to the school district? You can't be scared to teach the reality of these terms, the, re- the reality of this language. Um, and so this is the opportunity for teachers to really impart an important lesson for their students. And if they miss that, they're missing a, a, a valuable opportunity. Um, and there's also, you know, first, a First Amendment argument, which is that teachers and educators can't restrict uh, materials and, and books just because they don't have the ideas within them. Have you been successful at getting other school districts to uh, return the books to their lists? Yes, we have. We had a similar case uh, around this time last year, another high-profile case uh, with a couple of other books. It was, uh, I think, uh, To Catch Your Eye and uh, Huckleberry Finn. Um, and yeah, we, we were successful in, in, in getting the books back on, onto the curriculum. There is obviously this pedagogical element of it. There's also a First Amendment element of it, which is, uh, you know, a public school like this one can't just remove a book because they don't like the ideas or some of the content within it. They have a policy in place where a board is supposed to review any changes or complaints? Yeah, we'll, we'll be encouraging them to, to follow uh, whatever review process they have. And if it's insufficient, then we'll uh, recommend it be changed. Thank you for allowing us to catch up with you en route home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rachel Cantor is executive director of Mississippi First, a nonprofit focused on education policy. She tells our Desiree Fraser one of the book's themes is standing up for what's right when it's not popular. I think that any time a school district decides to remove a book, especially a piece of American literature that is recognized as one of the greatest pieces of American literature from its curriculum, there are rightfully questions that parents and the public have to ask about what was the motivation behind that decision. To Kill a Mockingbird is taught in thousands of our nation's public schools every year. It was taught in my public school when I was in public school. And it is perceived to be a book that is important to explaining to young people the history of the Jim Crow South and opening conversations around race and difference and prejudice. And for a school district, especially a school district in Mississippi, to remove it from its curriculum, that's very concerning. So what message do you think this sends? You know, it's a bit hard to, to know exactly what the conversations were that the school district had before it made the decision to stop teaching the book. We are not privy, obviously, to those conversations, and it hasn't been very well explained by the school district other than they received complaints about some of the language that was in the book. And certainly there's language in the book that is jarring to us as readers in 2017, particularly the use of the N-word. And But I think what's important to understand, especially in the context of the book, is for young people to understand what that error was like and that that language was commonly used in that era, and it's still used today by people who harbor prejudice in their hearts, and being able to use a piece of literature to open a conversation about why that's wrong and place that and have that novel 
take a place in the historical legacy of racism in the American South is a very important conversation to have. And so it's hard to know how the school district came to the decision that these conversations were not the right conversations to have or that there was a different book that you could teach that. But it's hard to, to teach that lesson, I think, unless you use literature that is of very high quality and that you can have those deep conversations with. And many of our novels in American, in the American canon that deal with race use some very disturbing language. Um, when you look at, you know, look at Huckleberry Finn, for example, look at To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, even look at, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin that was credited as being part of the popular culture uh, at the time around the Civil War and was a big, a big, uh, cultural, um, touchstone for the abolition movement. Um, there is, you're gonna see things in serious literature that don't make you feel comfortable and there's a reason for that. And the role of the school and the role of teachers and the role of administrators is to place that literature in its proper historical context and to open those conversations in a safe space of the class room so that children can know that we have to talk we have to have difficult conversations and there's a good way to have them a productive way to have them so you disagree with what they did yes you know i don't know the exact nature of the complaint or why it came about from the reports it seems that the nature the nature of the complaint was simply about the language in the book and not necessarily about say the way it was being presented um, I do think that with literature like this, you have to present it in the right way so that children in the classroom who may feel personally impacted by some of that language don't feel like it's normalizing that language or making that kind of acceptable. But there is a right way to teach literature like this. And if you do it the right way, I think that, that the value of that outweighs the discomfort that anyone might feel as long as you are able to place it in its proper historical context. What did this book do for you when you read it? Well, I think To Kill a Mockingbird, which I read in in 10th grade as part of an honors English class, was one of those texts that showed one of the themes that's in the novel is about how it's important to stand up for what is right beyond what is popular. And this is particularly important, I think, for students to hear who are in high school because peer pressure and going along with the with what is popular is is something that teenagers struggle with a lot in high school and particularly in the context of race where these were characters in a small southern town at the time of Jim Crow where African American citizens were seen as second class and for the Scout's father, Atticus Finch, in the novel, to represent a man who is accused of a crime against a white woman in this novel, that was pretty a pretty difficult decision for him to make, and they, they felt the consequences of that as a family. But for teenagers to see and to be able to talk about what kind of courage that must have taken and what it must have been like to be an African-American person in that time period and all of the legacy that comes along with that, those are very important lessons for especially our students in Mississippi to hear. And when I was in high school, it was definitely one of the, the books that resonated with me as something that was, you know, held important lessons. 
and to think that that students wouldn't get that rich experience of reading that novel and have that that view into what that time period was like and how that time period is still impacting us today is a real loss. Can you think of a book that could fulfill the role that this book was supposed to fulfill of teaching compassion, as you said, showing what it was like in, in this time now where we're seeing a resurgence of hate being expressed by folks? There are certainly novels that would teach the time period. But one of the things that sets To Kill a Mockingbird apart is that it was a Pulitzer Prize winner. And it was written by a woman author. And that makes it a bit unusual because so many of the pieces of literature that we consider in the canon are written by men. And that's in part because we didn't recognize the contributions of women. It was written by a woman who was a Southerner herself. Um, in a small Alabama, set in a small Alabama town, very similar to Mississippi. And so, yes, there are other novels that, that you might be able to teach similar lessons to, but especially because To Kill a Mockingbird is such a cultural touchstone now, and that Atticus Finch, for a lot of people um, today, would say that Atticus Finch was a role model, even though he's this character, you know, it's. I think it's important for, for students to have that cultural background, even if you could look through the list and find other novels that maybe are not as intense that teach something similar. But we can't, as educators, shy away from difficult conversations, intense conversations, especially in this day and age when we're seeing a resurgence of people espousing ideals of white supremacy and doing such in a, in a violent way, these things are real. They're real in our culture. They're real for our students. And we have to be able to talk about them, especially in our classrooms, and be able to lead students through conversations about what that means. Well, Rachel, we really appreciate you speaking with us. Rachel Cantor with Mississippi First, uh, your insight and your candor on this issue. Thank you. Sure. Members of Congress are speaking out about the school district's decision. Republican Senator Roger Wicker said in a statement, Normally, I decline to comment on local school issues, but I must say that the decision to remove To Kill a Mockingbird is utterly ridiculous. I hope parents will speak up. Democratic Representative Benny Thompson said in a statement, Polling To Kill a Mockingbird from a school's reading list ignores the history of our country. Nebraska Senator Ben Sasse even weighed in via Twitter saying engaged parents should call the school district with the clear message, our kids are tough enough to read a real book. Coming up on Everyday Tech, learn ways to easily get your devices connected. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition. I'm Michelle McAdoo with Wilts Couture, and today we're discussing at-home networking. So, Wilts, what are some challenges of home networking? One of the biggest problems that people run into when it comes to their networks at home, and in this day and age, most of those networks at home happen to be wireless. And so the big challenge that comes up is distance. It seems like I hear from more and more people that, well, you know, wireless works great in my bedroom, but I can't get anything in the living room. Or I get it great in the master bedroom, but going over to the kids' side, it's just not really all that strong. And and typically that has a lot to do with where we're placing our equipment. It can also be the age of the equipment. Some of your newer technology can get a little bit more distance and maintain those speeds. And 
quite honestly, it can just really come down to moving it to a different location in your house can make a huge difference. For example, your kitchen is, believe it or not, a really, really big hindrance when it comes to at-home, especially wireless networking. And that is because think about the items that we have in our kitchen. You have a stove, which is running on a high voltage. You have refrigerators. You have you know, dishwashers, all these other different electronic devices in there. And as a result, those those wires in the wall, believe it or not, will actually severely impact the ability for that wireless signal to make it past them. And what are some common devices used to create a home network? Your most common devices are going to be the wireless router. Um, sometimes, though, those will actually be add-on devices. So if you walked into your favorite box store, you may see some items in there, be it by Linksys or Belkin or Netgear. Those are some of the common companies that make these devices. Sometimes they'll have antennas sticking out of them. Sometimes they won't. It's very common that people will plug these in if the devices that your Internet provider gave you did not include wireless functionality. Because, again, that's how most people are wanting to connect. We don't want to be tethered to the desk, tethered to just one spot in the house, you know, with phones, with tablets, with laptops. What are some devices taking advantage of the home network now? Well, it's really easy to point to the common, the the phone, the tablet, the computer, and those things. But now we're starting to see so many more things taking advantage of it, especially when we talk about the wireless space. You have things such as the wireless thermostats now. Uh, you're seeing a lot more activity in that area. You also have a lot more wireless cameras that are going in, people who are putting more security cameras in, or, or even just a doorbell that can connect wirelessly that will allow you to see who's at the front door before you even answer it. And let's not forget those smart TVs that are all over the place, whether it's built into the TV or an add-on device such as a Roku or a Fire Stick or Apple TV. We're starting to see more and more services being delivered wirelessly for the home consumer via those devices. We're also starting to see things such as the home assistant, Google Home, your Amazon Echo, and some of the other similar devices out there that are actually giving you sort of that personalized service within the house. So they're taking advantage of all of these things. So it really does go pretty far beyond just your computer or phone. If someone's having trouble with their home networking experience, what are some troubleshooting tips that you can give? One of the first things that I would ask folks is really how old is the wireless modem or router that you're using. Um, believe it or not, over time, these things will actually wear out and they will start to kind of lose some of their potency, really, when it comes to that ability for that antenna to talk. And also, just like with our normal technology, there's so many advances being made that things have gotten a little bit quicker, a little bit more efficient. So if you have a device that's four, five, six years old, it may be time to go hit the store and upgrade to a newer one. So we really need to embrace the efficiencies that technology brings along with it when we're talking about connecting our home. It opens up so many doors to so many possibilities. I mean, they're virtually endless nowadays. We just need to have the strength and the bravery to walk through that door and embrace what it has to offer. We will talk more about at-home networking on Everyday Tech, the show that comes on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. You can send us an email to everydaytech at mpbonline.org. For Wilkes Couture, I'm Michelle McAdoo. This is Everyday Tech on Mississippi Edition.
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's National Agricultural Statistics Service, or NASS, is continuing its biannual agricultural labor survey this month. The survey will collect information about hired labor from more than 250 Mississippi farmers and ranchers. Officials say the, date is, the data is critical to farming operations and helps the agency administer farm labor programs. They say through responses to the survey, leaders, associations, and farmers influence decision-making. Esmeralda Dixon is state statistician with the NASS in the Mississippi field office. She tells us the USDA and the U.S. Department of Labor use the statistics gathered to establish minimum wage rates. The labor survey is a biannual agriculture labor survey that we do the second half of October. And this survey is where we collect data from farm operators. We will be collecting it from about 250 Mississippi farmers and ranchers. Have they already been designated, those 250? Yes, the sample has been drawn, and we randomly sample the farmers. And they know that they're supposed to complete this survey? Yes, a pre-survey letter goes out to all farmers because we allow them the opportunity to either do it by mail or by email. What kind of data are you collecting? This data is farm wage data, um, how many workers work on the farm. It's uh, information that we use in order to establish minimum wage rates for agriculture workers. In past surveys like this, have there been big changes over the years? It's not drastic changes, um, but we typically see that the numbers do go up from one quarter to the next quarter of how many labor workers are working during that time frame. These are workers on a farm or are these farm owners, agricultural owners? These are workers on the farm. Um, They may be members of the family that are being paid as well, but they are agricultural workers and they administer farm labor work. What is the average wage? The average wage rate is $10.68, and that's composed of field and livestock workers. These are full-time workers, or can they be part-time as well? They can be part-time and full-time. So the full-time, we're working an average of 47 hours? 47.5 hours. Okay. When you collect this information about wages, whether it's full-time or part-time, what do you do with those figures? That information is used by the United States Department of Labor, and they use that information so that they can regulate the minimum wage rates and to um, do farm labor recruitment, as well as legislators use it for determining policy issues. It's interesting because whenever we get the unemployment numbers, it always has separate the agriculture farm numbers. Do you know why that is? Because it's collected separately. I mean, we do it strictly for agriculture, and then they have the other labor rate. So there is a separate minimum wage for agriculture work compared to other industries? Well, I should say minimum wage for agriculture workers. Um, that is the wage rate that they, that those farmers, based on the number of days that the employees hired is what they set that based on. So farmers can set how much they want to pay field workers. Like in October last year, field workers made about $10.40, and then livestock made about $10.42 in the Delta region. That's Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi. So, yes, the wage rate for field and livestock can change. 
because the farmers are setting those rates. Tell us about those 250. What do they have to do to complete their survey, and when does it have to be done? We ask that they please complete this survey. They can do it in the mail when it comes to you, and then, or you can do it online, and the survey will reference um, two periods, the July time frame, July 9th through the 15th, how many workers you had at that time, and October 8th through the 14th. So you have until the second week of, um, I shall say, the 14th to complete the survey and to get the survey back to us. Esmeralda, is there a place, like an online site perhaps, where people can access the information? Yes. Our results, they will come out November 16th, and that website that you can, that will be available, the publication is on the NAS website, which is www.nas.usda.gov. Esmeralda Dixon is the state statistician for the USDA National Agricultural Statistics Service. Esmeralda, thank you very much. Thank you. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10 o'clock, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu.